Hi, and welcome to Scary Stories to Tell Your Sister. We're your sisters, Dana and Megan, and each week we'll take you on a deep dive with us as we tell each other the history and lore behind some of our favorite scary topics, and some you might not have heard before. So join us wherever you are and settle in for the spooks. So quick little introduction here. My name's Dana. And I'm Megan. I'm the oldest. And as long as we've been alive, we've been as different as night and day. I've always been a lover of scary movies and forever curious about the paranormal, sometimes much to our mother's dismay. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm the youngest and therefore the quintessential scaredy cat who was the object of Megan and our friend's terror but I grew into an obsession with the scary topics because I wanted to know the facts I wanted to know what the stories were about even if I couldn't watch them I needed to know and that took us here yeah so we meet in the middle the unknown each week we'll go over two topics and neither of us knows what the other one will be dealing with together with you the listeners we'll try to scare and teach one another so, Megan, now that I'm fully settled in here and it's dark, I'm back in the closet. Are you ready to tell me our first scary story? I am. The subject that I picked this week, they're supernatural beings who make their appearance in the form of a child. Any guesses? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to say it because I, I have a feeling that you chose the one that haunts my um, my dreams, not even <laughs> nightmares. Is it the black-eyed children? Yes, it is. The cool. black-eyed children. Their eyes are said to be totally black, and they're said to speak in a hypnotic kind of monotone voice. Mm-mm. They come to your home or your vehicle, and they ask you to invite them inside. Mm. They're a vampire, but with creepy eyes. Exactly. When kind you of- say... When you say black eyes, are mm-hmm. you talking about, like, the entire eye, like, that X-Files one that haunts me where the whole entire eye is black? Yeah, so so it's, like, from the, the pupil, to the sclera, like, everything. The entire eye is completely black. Fantastic. Love it. Love yeah. It. I know. I know you must. <laughs> yeah, so it is in the same vein as vampires where they can't come in unless they're asked. And if you were allowed or were not allowed if you did allow one of these children to enter into your home or vehicle it said that you or somebody that's like with you in the home could get very sick or even possibly die no thanks that's 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 a new level of stranger danger exactly (laughs) (laughs) so where did this all begin you may ask The history of the Black-Eyed Children doesn't go as far back as you might think. The first encounter is said to have happened in 1996, which is actually 26 years ago. And I didn't understand mom's perception of time back in the day when she would like relay a story (laughs) to us and say, it happened not that long ago. I saw him the other day. Yeah. And it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. But I get it now. I get it now because 1996 seems like yesterday. Yeah, and like unless you put into facts that like I was six and you were ten, yeah, 
but like for me it's like when people say 2000 like oh 10 years ago not 20 years ago right I was like once once the 2000s hit for me I think everything is like 10 years shorter yeah (laughs) oh totally I agree yeah so this story begins on a spring evening in Abilene, Texas, a man by the name of Brian Bethel, who lives in the area and works as a newspaper reporter, was on his way to pay his internet bill. Since it was later in the afternoon and it would be dark soon, he was planning on just dropping the check off in the drop box provided by the company. Now, the parking lot was pretty much empty And when Brian arrives, he puts his car into park and begins writing his check. The sun is setting, so really the only light that's provided to him is from the theater sign that's nearby. So Brian has only just signed his name on the check when there's a knock on his car window. Mm, Thank you. Yeah. So standing there are two boys. Now, that in and of itself to me is scary. <laughs> I was going to say, to like young boys, like, no. Mm-mm. Right. And like just the other day, I was in the passenger seat as Ray, my fiance, was driving and we were running errands and just we were stopped at a red light. So we weren't even moving. And I'm on my phone. I'm like just looking down. And then, you know, when you feel like a presence oh, next absolutely. to you. So I felt something to the right of me, but <laughs> I'm just thinking, okay, maybe it's like a motorcycle just trying to get in front of any yeah. everybody. You're at an intersection. People can walk by around. Yeah. So even though I didn't like hear any noise, but I decided to look over and there's a man standing there <laughs> holding flowers, looking in the window. And I'm like, ah! and Did you actually scream. Yeah. I, well, I kind of went like, ah, like that. <laughs> and then we the light turned green a few seconds later but um no I totally get that yeah it's scary because you're in a car you don't expect a person to be standing next to you yeah so anyways similarly I like and the thing is your story and similar to mine is because I was by the train station near our apartment and it's Abby and our dog Ferris in the car and I'm looking for something, and I am focused. I'm looking through my bag. I, I'm, I thought I misplaced something. So I have that, like, super focused, my, like, hyperfixation almost looking in. And all of a sudden, I didn't even feel the, like, the energy of, this, of the person next to me, Ferris, our dog, this really low growl. And I was like, what is it? And then I turned... And stepping up to me to the car, because I'm in between two cars, wherever the transition is this woman. And Ooh. I felt like my body, my, my body, like that, the, like screenshot it, as they say, <laughs> like the, the tense. Um, she was very sweet. She, she needed some help. I was able to help her, but like, I did not hear her approach me. I did not, and that I was in a public place. I was out of my car. And still, it was like, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you weren't even in your car, so that's even scarier because you're yeah. vulnerable. Exactly. Yeah. So, where he is, Brian, he is in his vehicle, and the boys come to his window, and he said that they couldn't have been any more than 12 years old. So, Brian opens the window because he's not really scared at this point. 
he's thinking that they probably are just there for money and he's feeling more annoyed than he is fearful because you know he wants to get home he's just writing out this check and headed home so brian opens the window and he's able to see the boys clearly he describes the one closest to the window as having olive skin tone and curly brown hair it's me it's you Surprise. Surprise. (laughs) And he goes on to describe the other boy behind him as having red hair, freckles, and more of a pale skin tone. And only one of them spoke, the boy in front with the curly brown hair. So when he spoke to Brian, he had said that he had forgotten their money for the movie that they were planning to see. And then he begins to ask Brian if he can give them a ride to their mother's home to get the money for the movie. Now, there are a few things that trigger alarm bells for Brian. The boy didn't speak like an average child would. The cadence cadence was off and the words almost sounded rehearsed. Another thing he noted was the movie that the boys had said they would be seeing, Mortal Kombat. They were right by the theater marquee and Mortal Kombat was indeed showing that evening and you could see it, you know, on the marquee itself. So he knows it's playing, but uh-huh. it's the last showing of the evening and the movie had already begun. Wow. So Brian notices this, notices the time on his car clock and realizes no matter where he takes them, he wouldn't be back in time in order for the kids to actually see the movie. So there's a feeling of absolute fear growing inside of Brian. And yet, yeah, even though he feels this fear, his hand is moving towards the handle of the car door, seemingly going to open it. The child or the man? Brian. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So... Even though he's so fearful, he has this urge to open the door, which is strange. He looks away, and when he looks back, it's like it finally registers what really is so off about these kids. Yeah. Their eyes are completely black. No. And at that moment, he experiences an inner chill like no other and knows deep down that this is something supernatural. He now knows he needs to get the hell out of there. And he actually, at this point, is fearing for his life. So he tells them he's not able to take them. And he quickly rolls up the window. (laughs) Yeah. But as he's rolling up the window, the boy that was speaking the entire time begins to pound on his window. Absolutely not. Yeah. And he said... In the interview that I watched, that the kid was pounding so hard that the car was shaking. No. I look at it teary-eyed. Not, like, sad, but, like, the fear. I would have been – and this man, I'm assuming, is, like, he's a grown man. Um, Yeah. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, in the interview, he was just, like, this average guy. You could tell that he's not, like – Somebody trying to show off, trying to get attention. Not, no, not at all like that. And you said a thing about basically about him being a journalist as well. So there's a journalistic integrity that you'd hope he have too to make sure the story is told correctly. 
albeit terrifying. Yeah, right. And so the kid is pounding on the door. Brian glances at this time at the boy who hasn't yet spoken and notices his expression on his face change to sort of befuddled. And the boy then says, quote, Mr. We can't come inside your car unless you tell us it's okay. I mean, no, it's not okay. So right. <laughs> He's like, I already said no. <laughs> no. No means no. Yeah. <laughs> so Brian is done and he drives out of there so fast. And on his way out, he looks back and realizes the boys now are nowhere to be seen. So this, like I said, is over 20 years later. And he still says it was the scariest thing he's ever experienced poor guy yeah no. because also you said that it was like an empty parking lot mm-hmm. and like, yeah were, it's like where could they have gone in that you know time right and where he was exiting from i'm sure was not like miles away so from him leaving them to looking back could not have been a long enough period of time for them to just yeah. like zap nowhere you know what? I have a really weird thought. That this is the first time I thought this, like, if it, one dealing with, because I mean, I've heard about the black eyed children before, you know, quick things. Mm-hmm. But you talked about the boy, the redheaded one, I'm assuming, I think you said, was being like, he looked at him strangely, almost like, this isn't working. Part of me wonders. I'm like, were the black eyed children themselves the children? Or was something else using the children? Right. Right. Right? Like, almost like a, not like a, like a, like a possession almost, not like a demonic possession, but almost like something in the vein of that being like, I'll use your body because your body's little and people say little's okay. Right. Fusion, you know? I don't know. I don't like it. Yeah. No, I totally see where you're coming from, though. Now, not long after this incident, another man in Portland, Oregon, had a similar experience. It's 1997, late at night, and a man by the name of John Norwood had just finished attending a seminar in downtown Portland. He grabs a bite to eat, and after his meal, he went back to the third floor of the parking garage where his vehicle was. Now, it's... After the seminar that he attended and he had grabbed a bite to eat. And I think at this point, it's like 11 o'clock. So it's pretty late. Okay. He's back at his vehicle, gets in his car, starts his car, and he's about ready to leave when somebody knocks on his window. Mm. He notices that it's another man named Doug who also attended the conference. So he's not afraid at this point. He opens the window and asks the man what it is that he needs. Doug goes on to tell him that there are some people hanging around his car and he feels uncomfortable and wants to know if John could let him inside for a little while. So John lets him in and they begin to drive. Now, the direction they're driving in, they will be passing Doug's car. And as they they do, John notices that the three people around the car are actually children. There were two boys. One, one of them, actually both of the boys were leaning against Doug's car. One was a, around 14 years old and then the other one was about 12. And okay. the third child was standing near the boys 
and she was a girl about 14 years old. So John is now freaked out by the kids as well. As he drives slowly past them, the two boys walk up to the car that John is driving. The youngest walks up to his window and John asks him why they're standing by Doug's car. To which the little boy replies, it's scary out there all alone and we just wanted a ride home. And now the oldest boy is standing by Doug's window and he's claiming that Doug promised that he would help them. Mm. So Doug seems fed up and is about to get out of the car, but why? I'm not sure why he would get out, especially if he was like, you know, so freaked out by this. Right. If you were scared enough to be like walk to another person's car and be like, Hi, I'm I don't like this. Maybe maybe he thought that like if the other man was there, he, <laughs> the kids would be like less inclined to like harm him. Do something. Him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's like, probably what, what it. Got me into. <laughs> right, yeah. So, but as he's doing this, um, John notices that the faces of the two boys begin to look different, mm. almost like they've aged in that few in those few minutes of just standing there, and their eyes now are jet black. So John at this point is like, "I am out of here." <laughs> um, Doug is still in the car with him. And so they begin to speed away with the kids chasing after them. And at this point, John begins to fear for his life. By the time they get to the floor level of the parking garage, the oldest boy happens to already be down there. And he almost makes it to the driver's side door. But by sheer luck, John is able to speed past and escape him. Mm. A few minutes later, Doug tells John that earlier he had given the youngest a ride. And that the little boy had asked him if he could take him all the way to his house. And John was willing to do this. But the older boy scared him so much that he changed his mind in the end. Well, Doug, you have a lot of explaining to do. Right? (laughs) So now John and Doug have driven around for a little while and they feel safe enough to go back. When they go back to the third floor, the kids aren't there. And John feels like, okay, Doug, you're safe. You can go. (laughs) So. (laughs) Bye. Yeah, I've had enough. Go. (laughs) So Doug exits the car and then goes into his own vehicle. They're both leaving around the same time. And John begins to feel that kind of sense of dread again. Mm. And when, just a moment ago, they were feeling absolutely fine. You know, all was well. Yeah. So as he continues to feel this intense emotion, Doug is crossing an intersection and is hit by a truck and killing him. What? Yeah, it kills him. John, unfortunately, witnesses all of this. And when the police arrive, he tells them everything that occurred that evening. After speaking with the officers, John gets back in his car and is just sitting there, probably still in shock about the entire evening, when he notices a little ways up the street are again the three children. John swears by this account and actually shared it in the same chat room that Brian Bethel from the first first story also frequented. So there's that story. And I have one last story for you. And for some reason, 
even though this one isn't as detailed when it comes to like names and dates, well, it has the date, but not like anything too specific. I feel like this one freaks me out the most, maybe because it is the most mysterious. Also, can I just talk about how that poor man, both of those poor men, but can you imagine being the one who's like, I went to a conference, I'm feeling pumped probably. Yeah. Food and then I'm gonna head home. It's late, you know. You're probably like, it was a good day. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, I need your help, and you're like, okay, yeah, I'll totally help you out. <laughs> I'm not laughing at. I'm laughing at the. It's fear. Yeah. Oh, and I get that. Like, yeah, no, I'll totally help you out. And then seeing a gaggle of youth, which in of itself, at Love Hawk at night, I don't need to be seeing that. Yeah. And then. That fear and anger. I mean, okay, you brought this on, Doug. You started this. And then being probably mad at Doug. And then Doug dying in front of you. Right. It's like... It was not a good day after all. Yeah. Your emotions (laughs) are like from here to there to here to there. There's so much going on. So Um, that one was upsetting. I'm ready to be scared now. Yeah. Yeah. So the final one is... It takes place in the winter months of Vermont in 2016. Okay. And they're, it's a couple, a husband and a wife. They're expecting nobody over for the evening since there was a blizzard outside. They've tucked themselves into their warm and cozy home. And then the wife notices a light knocking coming from their front door. Mm. So she walks to the front door, opens it. And immediately sees a small boy and girl just standing there in the frigid Vermont blizzard. They pleaded to use her phone. And because of the current weather conditions, the woman didn't think twice and let the kids inside. Absolutely. It wasn't until the kids got inside of the home where there was light that the woman saw their eyes. There was no definition between the iris pupil and sclera. The eyes were just an inky black. She stood there stunned and terrified. And just like that, the next sequence of events happened in what felt like the blink of an eye. Okay, but first and foremost, one, why are you going by yourself to the door? Well, you know, I would have said the same thing. But the other day, I did something that was so stupid in retrospect. I was home. It was before I was going to be going to work. I was folding laundry on the couch. And then I hear somebody knock on the door. I know it's a woman because she's talking to one of my cats that's outside story. And she's, you know, saying, hi, kitty, kitty, you know. And for some reason, I'm like, oh, it's a woman safe. So (laughs) I didn't have a bra on. So I quickly ran to the bedroom, put on a bra and then didn't even look out the window. Megan Ashley. I know. I can't, like, thinking back now, I'm like, what were you thinking? You were literally sitting there watching Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> you know what? Let's have a fully immersive experience here. Yeah. So I, <laughs> exactly. So I opened the door and it was a nice woman, a police officer, <laughs> but she was very nice and it was, it was nothing, but still what was I thinking? So yeah, it happens. Sometimes you just don't think. Yeah, I I understand. But like, I feel like I live in Massachusetts. I live where we get really like, you know, obviously the winter storms. Yeah. I feel like if it's a stormy night, 
and like you're in for the night with your partner and someone knocks on the door, I'd be like, mm, nothing good is coming from that. But but then again, to your point, sometimes in this moment, you're like, oh, I'll grab it real quick. I'll grab the door. We're fine, you know? Right. But still. Yeah. Fine. Yeah, it happens. Happens to the <laughs> best of us. So she does answer the door for these kids, notices their eyes, and then the at that moment – the power goes out in the entire house. So now they're standing in pitch black. No. Her husband suddenly begins to get a nosebleed. And moments later, both children speak simultaneously and say, their parents are there to pick them up now. So the children turn around, walk out the door, not saying another word, Still in darkness, the woman is too stunned to speak, but she watches them as they go and sees a black car outside with a man dressed in a suit. Not long after these events, the woman's husband finds out he has skin cancer. Not only that, but she begins to continuously suffer from nosebleeds, as well as a whole slew of other medical issues. She's certain that these ailments they both suffered from are due to their encounters with the black-eyed kids. I'm sorry. That is... I'm trying to think of which is the worst thing. The power's going off? No, it's the simultaneously speaking at the same time. Yes, absolutely. Because, wait, wait, did they even use the phone? Right? I noticed the same thing. From what I read, there was no use of the phone, first of all. Second of all, not only was there no use of the phone, but the dad shows up not knowing where they are. They didn't use the phone to tell their parents where they would be. So how did the dad know that, hey, my kids are in this house, you know, with strangers, mind you. You're not going to go up there and say anything to these people. Like, thank you so much for keeping my child safe in a snowstorm at night. Right. So, like, where were they before that? Will they disappear in the snow? Right. And, like, also, like, how did they, like, maybe because the power was out, it was dark, and they saw, the like, the car light. But, like, how do they know the parents were there? I have so many questions that right. I don't even know. To, no. Yeah, this is 2016, too. So it's like they have TV where the news is probably broadcasting all the time. Hey, there's a blizzard. Stay inside. Yeah. So I'm sure that they were fully warned as to what was about to happen. Yeah. But the two children and them speaking simultaneously are definitely something that's that's terrifying like it I don't know that just creeps me out too but when I was thinking about the first story when it came to Brian Bethel yeah and how he was saying that their eyes were completely black the first thing that I thought of was contacts and how there are contacts that cover the entire eye blocking out like the whites and creating that look of like an all-black eye But he made a really good point in the interview saying that this happened over 20 years ago and those full sclera contact lenses were not readily available. And if you were able to buy some of those, they would cost you hundreds of dollars. 
And teens and children do not have that kind of money. So that's not something that you would, that could probably be happen back then, you know, when it, when he encountered those children. Yeah. I mean, like we, that put like a little bug in my head and like, as I need to research things, like, okay, here in like the year of our Lord, 2022, I just looked it up right now. I have the internet. I can look it up right now without having Wi-Fi. With having Wi-Fi, no dial-up. And even here, it's like the cheapest one I see. Well, there's one that's like a mini one. That's not a full. But looking for full blackout, scare me. It's like $67. $60 here. And like that's me looking it up. That doesn't include shipping. So back in 96, you had what? Maybe like dial-up internet. But what teen right. is oh, what? I'm going to spend my money. <laughs> buy these contacts are probably also like you said it's over 20 something years ago the contacts probably weren't the best quality no. for a full i one too and it's like i'm trying to think of any like 12 year old i know what they might think that's cool i don't think they'd spend that much hundreds of dollars <laughs> exactly absolutely yeah. not. no now, if you do want to creep yourself out a little more, you should watch this sh- not show movie that's on Hulu. I think it's still on there. I haven't watched it in a long time, but I did watch it a couple years ago. Okay. And it's called They Come Knocking. Mm. It's about black-eyed children. And Dana, it is so creepy. I usually don't get creeped out necessarily by the subject of the black eyed children or things like that. Yeah. But this one really spooked me and we watched it, Ray and I, we watched it in the old house, the, the big house and (laughs) nobody was home. Nobody was home. We lived in this giant house, not finished, (laughs) but like vaulted ceiling, like a vaulted ceiling, but with like concrete floor. So, and and all the sounds. Yeah. Like our, bedroom did not have a door we had a curtain on it so like I would always that would freak me out in general because I would always be afraid to see like feet underneath the curtain because I have such a wild imagination so at night I would sometimes look at the curtain and just imagine like these dirty feet standing because the curtain was kind of raised (laughs) so you could see if somebody were standing there you could see their feet yeah, so in my no, mind, I, I imagine, what was that? Yeah, no, I hate it. Thanks. Yeah, sorry. But anyways, I just kind of rambled on. We watched this scary movie in that big house, got completely freaked out. And then at one point, we hear a noise coming from the second story. Mm-hmm. And Ray is like, what was that? And I, I had no idea what it was. Like I said, we were all alone. So he gets up to go investigate and naturally I want to go follow because I don't want him to go <laughs> up there alone. So we're, we're both dying together. Yeah. So we're going up there and then I realized we have absolutely nothing to protect ourselves. So I ran to the kitchen, which was just right off the, the stairs and grabbed, opened the utensil drawer, grabbed a fork and ran back up and then realized, why did I grab a fork and not like a knife? <laughs> So we go up there and we're looking around and we realize it's story. Huh. Our cat, our cat. Who, yes. um, she is a bigger 
a bigger girl, so she does make a little bit more noise than our other cat Wednesday. So it was it was story, and we were safe. But check it out. I suggest you and Abby watch it one night, or maybe <laughs> maybe we can watch it together separately. Oh yes, together apart. Yeah, no, I hate it. Because like, I'm still stuck on that aspect. I think it's because each story had a different aspect that blended together, but had different like unease with it. Like they had to be invited in to the car or the house. Mm-hmm. That unease, that like I have had that feeling before. That it's like it's unexplainable. That like dread over your body with like that deep pit in your stomach. Oof. And like that weird feeling there, they have that, and the and the people acting without their own awareness. I don't like that. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's disturbing in and of itself. When your body is doing something without you telling it to do something, like in Brian's case, when he went to go grab the door handle, and he's not even thinking about hey, let me let these kids in to help. He's more like, I'm terrified of these kids. Why am I reaching for the door? Exactly. And I'm trying to think, like, and, like, Abby and I have a rule with Ferris because, like, he's, you know, he mainly goes out. We have a good nighttime walk and then we're done for the evening. But, like, sometimes he's still, he's only a year. Sometimes, like, something happens and he has to go out in the middle of the night. We have a, we have a rule from listening to scary stories and things like that that we can't go out once it's at dark by ourselves Um, and this this is just really nailing that coffin there that no absolutely not because if i saw a small child (gasps) no Uh and the thing is like like you said when their mannerisms and way of speaking is just like swipe slightly odd like what is it it's the i think there's a thing called yeah there's this term it's called the uncanny valley and it's this thing where it talks about when something's just slightly human mm-hmm. like there's something just like slightly uh, like the human likeness and like the way your your unease is with it kind of thing yeah and like how okay it looks like a human but I'm not like a robot like an industrial robot it looks human life but i'm not afraid of it you right. know there's like the humanized robots and you're like oh a little less and i feel like that that the actions of the speaking and the mannerism and of course the fucking black eyes um, <laughs> that that's that that's that thing it's like that the, the unease or revulsion like when you're like it's too realistic but not realistic enough, and your body, the animal part of your brain is like, danger, Will Robinson, something's wrong. Yeah. Right. Uh, and yeah, no, I will, yeah, definitely we'll have to watch that together. Please do, and let me know what you guys think of it. Yeah. And then, that was my, that's it for my scary stories of the wow. week. I'm excited to hear what you've been diving into. Yeah. So it's funny enough that your last story dealt with not I don't I'm not dealing with black eyed children obviously, but I am dealing something that is in the same vein like when you talked about 
how their quote-unquote father came to pick them up, and he was a man in a suit. My heart started racing because I was wondering if he happened to be the topic of my discussion today. When I told Abby about my topic, she thought of the movie with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, which, while amazing in itself, is not what I'll be discussing today. Do you know what I'm talking about, Megan? Yes, I'm smiling from ear to ear because (laughs) I know it's the men in black. Exactly. So I'm talking to you today with the men in black, these men in suits, these government agents that we see in media as the people that take you into the back room or come to your house after you've experienced something of the supernatural or extraterrestrial experience and they ask you for a detailed thing of what you saw and then they gaslight and gate they gaslight girl keeping gate and gatekeep you and covering it all like scaremongering all that stuff mm-hmm. since the beginning of the ufo sightings being recorded in the united states like the modern recording of things like that there have also been reports of their cover-ups as well the center of those cover-ups are the titular men in black we've seen them in shows like the x-files in fringe movies like close encounters and more each time there's often two to three individuals with a demeanor as like a federal agent. They tend to scare off or intimidate the individuals who have witnessed the sightings, but their true association with a government agency or something even more is never fully revealed. They kind of basically give you the vibes of I'm someone of importance and you don't ask questions. You just listen. Mm-hmm. So the first example we have of the Men in Black is in June 1947. And this is in Mari, I think Mari or Murray, it's M-A-U-R-Y Island. This is in Washington State. And this takes place with a guy named, his name is Harold Dahl. He worked on, it's like, oh wait, I have a fun fact here. That this event happened in Washington State uh, only a few days after a photograph and sighting of a UFO over Mount Rainier. Ooh, so interesting. There was activity happening around that time. So in that area. Yeah. So Harold is on the boat with his teenage son, Charles, and their dog. And he was working. His job was to like collect some of the felled logs that were in the water. And they'd use that for lumber sales. Like, so he was there on the day on the boat like he normally does. It wasn't a different day. And he spotted six flying discs in the air. And so one of those discs started to move erratically, kind of shaking. And because they were all like, in a formation, mm-hmm. and they were just falling out of formation. And so the remaining discs surround it. And while the one that was struggling is there in the middle of it, it releases this mess of metal and mush down to the lake where Harold, Charles, and the dog are. And this mess that fell, it was basically described as slag. And slag is the stony waste matter that's, like, separated from metals, like, during smelting and, like, refining the metals, that thing that comes to the top, like, the messy stuff. Okay. That's what slag is. So, this is falling from the sky. It ends up hitting 
Okay, this is really sad. That's of hitting Doll's son in the arm. It injures him, and I'm going to say it quickly and get it over with. The dog dies. No, Dana. So, dog's dead. No. Ferris. But quickly, without pain. I don't okay. know. But I'm telling everyone that now. Yeah. So, immediately, obviously, Doll tells his supervisor, and he even, like, I, I saw one report that he showed a picture, but I didn't hear another one. But his supervisor is a man named Fred Krishman, and he was skeptical about this at first. But when he went out, he ap- apparently also witnessed something in the sky. Wait, pause. Yes. Did you say he showed – like, he had a picture? I wonder if he showed him a picture later on because obviously it's a 47, so it's not going to be like an instant, like, okay. developing thing. Yeah. But... All right. I took a sip of water. But he, he showed him – I heard something that he showed him a picture that he had as well. Okay. But – so Christian's like, I don't believe you, but I'll look and apparently saw something in this guy that didn't make sense as well. So the next day – dolls at a diner and he's approached by a man he has never seen before the man's just like very nicely in a suit and so doll assumes that he is (coughs) a businessman here to talk about maybe like a deal with the lumber job the man sits down across from him and starts giving him an extremely detailed recounting of the events that happened the day prior so doll's scared because someone knew so much detail about this event and according to one source, the man reportedly told him, what I have said to you is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe. Like, he was told not to speak about the incident, and that if he did, bad things would happen. Mm. Now, this is often cited as one of the first encounters of the Men in Black. And Devil's Advocate here, I could also be like, it was you... It was your teenage son, and you told the supervisor. It could have gotten out to other people, you know? It's not like... But I don't know if the man told him things that he had not spoken about to anyone else. Mm-hmm. But still, later he was told by his wife that even it's a hoax kind of thing like that because... Wait, he was told by his wife? Later, say, say it's a hoax... And oh, his his wife told him to say it's a hoax? Later on, like years okay. later. And he did, but many said, did he do it because it was a hoax? Or did he do it because he was afraid? Because right. the report that he spoke about retaining some of the slag that fell with some people, including Army Intelligence. And oh. they wanted to collect it for analysis. And they did collect it. And on the way back to the Air Force, airfield base in california the plane caught fire and crashed of course it did of course it did (laughs) and okay so i had seen two reports one said that everyone died but then the other one said some people survived but the real but what's more of importance is the location of the slag or if anyone was or if anything of it was salvageable from the crash that's unknown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that one's the first one. And then we're going to jump ahead. And we're also going to jump to the East Coast. We're going to go 1953 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Okay. 
And this is a man. His name is Albert K. Bender. So Albert had served prior to this in the Air Force in World War One, And this is something that's come up a lot in my research is a lot of the people in the incidents have to do with people already in like the Air Force or surrounded by military or people who have, you know, that background already. Yeah, which reminds me of your story of the man who, like, he was a journalist, so he knew about reporting stuff, you know? And it's like, right. More credibility on, on certain things. Mm-hmm. So, Albert K. Bender, he was the creator of the International Flying Saucer Bureau. This, this group, he wanted to have a way of gathering stories of UFO sightings and offering theories about the origins of these seemingly inexplicable inexplicable objects it all came in a newsletter that he produced called the space review i would have loved to have been part right of i would have been even if i wasn't like fully believing all of it i was like yes give me my space review every month or week whatever you or every like even if it's once a year i'd be so happy for the space review dana do you remember the club that i made up when i was a kid I bought everybody these like alien head necklaces and it was what? What was it called? I can't remember what it was called, but it was about like aliens and UFOs. And I remember having a folder where oh, we yes. could keep our like information on UFOs. And everybody that was part of the club got one of those necklaces that I had got at like a flea market or something. But anyways, that's what made me think. That's what make this makes me think of. Honestly, I would love to have that again. I need to have like, right? the with the alien's head and have like scary, sto- scary <laughs> sisters on the back. Um, love it. Right. That'll be our first merch product. <laughs> so like our youthful heart Albert put all of his heart and soul into this, and it actually was really popular. It had international outreaching to the UK and Australia. It had offices with publications. Wow. So keep in mind, this is 1953, so this is even way before the internet. Yeah, that's extremely impressive. We're talking letters, we're talking long-distance phone calls, and long-distance mailing. So he was putting his money where his mouth was. That was a nice guy. He was. He did live with his mother and stepfather. No shade to you, Albert. You do need to do. But he called his place. He was in the third floor of the attic and, like, den. And he called it <laughs> the Chamber of Horrors. Okay, Al. What is going on there? <laughs> nice boy! <laughs> what is going on in the attic? <laughs> well, the Chamber of Horrors. He had fake skulls and shrunken heads and odd art. And when people would visit him, he'd set the scene with, like, weird sound effects or (laughs) records of, like, thunderstorms and screams. (laughs) He was, I think, whatever Albert was into, he gave it his all. Dana, would you go go into this? I would probably, like, yeah, I'll go hang out, Albert. And I'll walk in and be like, wow, this is some really cool stuff you have. And meanwhile, I'd be, like, shrinking in towards my spine. (laughs) And I like, you know what? I, I'm just like so tired. My head really hurts. Sick. <laughs> the screaming's a little bit much for my migraine. If you want, we can go, you know, out to the ice cream parlor or something. <laughs> Not, you know, the chamber of horrors. Yeah. And I'd be like, anytime you invite me back over again, I'd be like, mm, is it daytime? 
awesome. Do we have to have the screaming? Then no. You know? Um, yeah. Now, during the time of this event, this is also taking place. Like, weirdly enough, like the Washington one, there are a coinciding incident with other UFOs. So this is in Bridgeport. And in Southern Connecticut, there was a string of UFO sightings in the same time. So Albert starts getting ill. Uh, and he's getting phone calls. And when he's picking it up, no one's there. He's feeling really strange. No one's in their line speaking. But he knew that someone was there listening. Oh, that's creepy. So he's like, okay, creepy. It happened. No one's there. He kind of forgets about it. Until he goes to the movies a little while later to see a science fiction movie. He's, he's enjoying himself. He's going home at night. And he feels that feeling again that something is following him. Mm. So he hauls rear to his home, locks the door, goes up to his attic room. He is hit with this smell of sulfur. And he, when he opens the door, this like horrible smell hits him, and there's a floating orb in his room. He, Ooh. and so he's like, he was too stunned. But then what he does is what I would do too: flips on the light immediately, and the orb is gone. But all of his files and organization in the room are disarray. Almost like the orb was looking around in the room. Well, that's so bizarre, right? So, obviously, this is alien stuff, but we haven't gotten to the Men in Black yet. So, this is a little bit later again. Albert is a man of my heart, loves a good movie. So, he's at the movies again, (laughs) and he felt that feeling, but this time he's in the movie theater still. Okay. He feels that I'm being watched. There's something nearby, that that pressure of presence, you know? Mm -hmm. So, he's looking around. Like, who's looking at me? What's happening? And he can't really see anyone looking at him. They're looking at the screen. But as he's turning around to look back at the screen himself, there he is right next to him. A man in all black, a trench coat, fedora, and eyes that seemed to glow. <gasps> looking at him? Apparently, Megan. So, Nightmare. Albert, once again, channeling Dana before she's even born, he closes his eyes. No. <laughs> if yeah. I can't see you. see you. You can't see me. <laughs> and the man's gone. It was like, the man's gone. It's like, okay, maybe I'm just like really unwell. Maybe I'm hol- something's wrong. But then that unease hits him again. And the man who was just next to him is now behind him. That is so <laughs> scary. Like, kill me, please. Like, and then he said, not only was the man behind him, but Albert said he felt an unease and almost like an anger from that man. (gasps) Oh, Uh, my God. And so. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. And also, why is this man staring at him from, like, every angle? This reminds me of Dad. Dad went to the movies Many years ago, before we were born, our dad is dead now, but this was before we were born. My dad's like this big Italian from New Jersey, 
tough guy. And he's in the theater, only person in the theater. So he sits, picks like the primo spot in the middle and in walks this other guy. And where does this guy go? (laughs) Directly behind my father. No. Which my dad had that same feeling like, hey, dude, what are you doing right behind me? This is off. Something isn't right. He turns around. He's like, yo, ask the guy to like move. Like, why the hell are you sitting right behind me? So I can only imagine how poor Albert must be feeling now. Right? Yeah. That's so, not normal. It's not normal. And then also you can think about it. I mean, obviously they they probably did dress up more so going to the movies back in the day. But like having the hat and the trench coat still on, it's a little bit much for the movies. Right. And during this time as well, our man Albert is also apparently getting telepathic messages as well. He's Ooh. feeling like they're talking to him the aliens or or someone and so he decides um because not only because i told you that he was in the military but he was in the dentistry side he wasn't like actively flying planes but so he was like he went to medical school so Mm -hmm. he wasn't just gonna wash it off like but like you know like oh it's nothing yeah he kind of did though a little bit a little bit less intense than what I would have done, but he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take this telepathic messaging and do an experiment. If they can speak to me, maybe I can speak to them if I basically yell at them. Yell? <laughs> well, yes and no. He's not going to scream out. <laughs> he's going to do a, a, group, a group shout. So in an edition of the Space Review, his, his newsletter... He puts he's he puts a call out. He says, if anyone's willing to join him, memorize and mentally think a particular thought on a certain day and time. So basically a, a collective like group shout into the void. Okay. But they're thinking this. Like it's called World Contact Day, or as Ben Dern, the ISF IFSB officially preferred C Day. It was 6 o'clock in the evening, Eastern Standard Time, on March 15th, 1953. The message was, Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft that have been observing our planet Earth. We of IFSB wish to make contact with you. We are your friends. And fun fact, World Contact Day is still absorbed observed by UFO enthusiasts every March 15th, which is also Pi Day. I love that. And then I also love that he said, we are your friends. We are your friends. No, I'm not. Don't listen to me if you're listening. I could be your friend. I don't want to be. I'm afraid of them, Megan. (laughs) Apparently... His friendly outreach did not go over well because his room still was filled with sulfur smell. And he was told to not delve into matters that didn't concern him. Oh, that's creepy. So they said, Albert, we don't want to be your friend. We're too cool for you, Albert. (laughs) That's so (laughs) terrible. (laughs) So later. You can't sit with us. No, Albert, you're not an alien. We'll just use you for your mind and your messages. Later in 1953, uh, he makes a quick announcement. 
and he shuts down everything out of the blue and he tells no one why so like i said this was a huge thing this is like his passion project it went all over the world like he right. had outreach and he just said this is the end this is the last one if that happened you know that something serious was going on because somebody that passionate about something yeah and so involved just shutting everything down like that like points to something serious going on either something seriously going on like mentally (laughs) physically something is not right right with this situation it's like when we have uh, certain code words that we used and we're like yeah it's fine it was not and it's not Yeah. yeah so it wasn't until 10 years after this that he finally tells a story in a publication called flying saucers and the three men so he says that he was visited at night in his room by three figures that would come through the wall with hats on and my literal nightmare glowing red eyes. I could I, do without that. I was wondering, would you rather have black eyed children or glowing red eyes into Hold your Hold on. Room? Let me really think about it. I think about think- it and then we'll, 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 we'll. Circle back. Yeah, circle. Okay. Thank you. So have her that fear. Okay. So Albert didn't think it was a sleep paralysis or the shadow people, which we'll go into that later, but there is a sleep paralysis figure known as the hat man, which 10 out of 10 would never want to have. To have um, yeah. So he, he says this was extraterrestrials that had come to earth to harvest resources from antarctica and he wasn't allowed to speak of this encounter at all until they left the earth now megan how would he know this well i'll answer that question for you right now okay he would know this because they gave him a medallion and they said what when this medallion disappears that means we're gone, and you can speak about that. <gasps> My dumbass would lose that medallion. No, and then tell everybody. And be like, <laughs> guess what? The aliens were here. The medallion's gone. Antarctica <laughs> is where it's at. Oh my god! I can just see you three-way calling me, mom, and telling us. I think nervously so happened, and I don't know what to do about it, and. I think the medallion's gone, but it might not be. But either way, I'm just going to tell you guys because you don't really count. <laughs> yeah. And by this point, you would have been throwing up constantly. Oh, vomiting the entire time. Yeah. No. I'm crying. Pee my pants. Let's be real. <laughs> I can just imagine Abby. Abby be like, no. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> she'd shut it down. Either she'd shut it down completely or she'd be like, no, it did happen. Like, it, there's no, it's like either extreme. So, yeah. This, so Albert is the one that basically his experience is the one that says these men in black, these people are not actually human. And Ooh. that's why they're attached to alien encounters because they themselves are beings from another world. Interesting. So, but they appear in that look of what you think of like a powerful individual to listen to yeah so 
now we're going to go to the southern United States, but western, southwest. Okay. So it's 1964. This is Dr. Robert Jacobs. He was a scientist who worked in New Mexico, which you might think is Roswell, but we're not there. We're in White Sands, New Mexico. And this is a military base. And he would go there and he would film launches of ballistic missiles for testing. And he would, he enjoyed recording. So he did that for fun. So, okay. So he's doing this one day in 1964. And the very next day, the major on the base calls him into the office, like the moment he arrives on base. And mm-hmm. he goes there, and in the in major's office, I think Major Mansman, I'm pronouncing incorrectly. Major or what? Major Mansman. Oh, I think his name is. Oh, okay. He has a film canister open. He has the reel set up, and. They have the footage she got from the day before ready. Like to Okay, watch. so he, he shares his footage with Yeah, him. it's like basically like, hey, here's a recording from the day I got keep them for like your records almost like Okay. Like almost it's like when you're doing any experiment, you wanna have all your, you know, all your ducks in a row. Yeah. Being like if something happens I have this to back it up. Exactly. So they have his footage, and they sh- they have the footage of one of the missiles that was unsuccessful. And this is footage that he took, mind you. And upon rewatch, you see a unidentified object, a UFO, shooting a laser or a beam at the missile. Mm. And at the point where it hits the missile, the missile goes off course. And... Basically, they're like, did you see this and not say anything? And he's like, no. I was so far away from the missile that I'm looking in my viewfinder in 1964. And the viewfinder is tiny. So, yes, I can see the missile going up through there. But nothing is zoomed in. It's zoomed in. Do you know? It's like. You only see so much as you're filming. You don't see a playback on the screen in front of you right away. So they tell him, as far as you're concerned, this didn't happen. Oh. And the major tells him the two agents were not from the CIA. He didn't say where they were from, but he only said no to the CIA. (laughs) (laughs) And so they took the not CIA agents took the film and apparently they cut it and edited it telling him this leaves you off the hook but not off disclosure basically we cleaned it up for you but don't talk about it and he years later finally talked about it and when he did people began calling him day and night and harassing him and threatening him and his life because the because this one is more a government cover up, it seems like, right? And a lot of the times, is as it gets later in his life, he's feeling comfortable that nothing's happened about it. But it goes to show that they were still on top of it because no one 
who was calling him were people he knew. Obviously, it could have been anyone else, but it feels like they were basically saying to you, we told you not to talk about it. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. And a lot of the times, obviously, we think of these people as if you're not going the alien route, you go to U.S. government agencies. Right. Which the next one and my final one shows you that not only does it happen in the United States, it happens globally. So this is also in 1960s. This is in 1966. This is in Westall, Australia. So during this time, the media was tracking the newspapers. There was a saucer, a flying saucer. And if you look back at it now, you almost see like a timeline of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Because this is 62, so it's not, you're not going to get like, oh, in the town, 10 towns over, they saw something. Like you might hear it, but it's not going to be like you can look up on your internet and see the news of all surrounding areas immediately. Right. So looking back now, you can see almost the timeline of it, which kind of you can see how the military might have gotten to Westall on time because this was four days before the, before the incident in Westall. Okay. And. The thing is, too, one of the photographs of the event was actually leaked to the newspaper. And the person who took the photo didn't want to make public, but he showed it to a friend, and that friend leaked it. Mm. The photographer was visited by the Air Force because they were concerned that the object he had captured was the same object that was seen over Westall days later. So... They were back. They were able to track it down to him immediately. Okay. Is this is this picture available? I will see if it is, and if so, we can post it on our social media. Okay. So, and I'll just, I'll send it. If it's not, I'll also send it to you as well if I can find it. I'm curious. So this is Westall. Okay. It's a city outside of Melbourne, and this takes place at a schoolyard. So there is kids. There's about two hundred people. With this sighting. Wow. Um, that's. It's incredible. <laughs> that, that, yeah. That is a large number. So all the kids are running out of the school. Teachers and adults are there too. And they see an object going over the school. And almost landing and hovering. In a nearby grove field. One of the documentaries I watched about it. Made a point that I. Will be sitting with. Until I can find out. Who this was. They said that the child who got closest to the object moved away soon after it happened. Like, never returned. Hmm. So, immediately this object's flying over the school. They're all out there watching it. And a cordon was put up around Westall by the Commonwealth police officers. A gentleman saw them and was like, I don't recognize the uniform. I don't recognize the car. And so I was kind of looking it up because he said, oh, it was a Victoria police. It was a Commonwealth police officer. And from what I understand, this would be like the FBI taking over before the local police even showed up. Oh, wow. That's what I am gathering from this incident. Okay. I, had, I, I looked it up kind of quickly and it's basically like the Commonwealth is higher above 
Mm-hmm. But they they were there instantaneously almost and like cordoned off the entire area. And so there was a, a gentleman there. His name was Andrew Greenwood. He was a science teacher in year nine. And basically he said within 40 minutes, Air Force, Army, everything else, they were in the area and had a security banner around the reserve where the object was. But he's like, out of the area, we can sneak by and kind of see what's happening, which part of me gets because I need to know. Mm-hmm. Part of me is like, we're going to get caught and thrown into like the dark part of prison where no one remembers us. Or we're gonna get- <laughs> where no one remembers us. So, <laughs> I mean, I get it. If I saw a flying object, I'd be like, I need to know. But I don't know. Anyway, but Andrew's like, I need to know. And he sees a circular area with, like, trampled grass. And there were guards around it and people there with equipment, like, testing the area. Mm -hmm. And so he spoke to the local newspaper about it. He's like, here's what's happening. Because they're going to report on the incident that, like, over 200 students and adults and faculty saw. Uh, But two weeks later, two men claiming to be government officials knock on his door The one of them was in plain clothes. The other one was like a senior Air Force officer. They told him that he was mistaken about what he saw. And he didn't really see anything. He he said that he was threatened and told that he shouldn't say anything about it. And he tried to explain to them being like, no, you weren't there. I was. I know what I saw. And... The first thing they say to him was, you'd be, you know, ill-advised to go on saying that because clearly you were drinking on, on the job. You oh, no. They did not just say that to him. <laughs> and they basically said, mm, I wouldn't talk about it if I were you because obviously you were drunk. And if we report you about that, you'll lose your job. <gasps> Bullies. Yeah. So he didn't talk about it for years because he was basically scared of like losing his job and everything else. His well-being and basically (laughs) being told that he was, you know, a drunk and that basically, hi, we are the government. Who's going to believe who's who are they going to believe us to government officials or you a science teacher. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have one more. This is a quick one. And it kind of shows how it doesn't matter, once again, who you are, they'll, they'll find you. So Paul Miller is this gentleman who's returning home from a hunting trip when he saw a luminous disc in the sky. And so he's driving home from hunting. He's like, what is that? And when it lands in a field nearby, he stops his car. And he sees two figures emerge from the the flying saucer and he being a man with a gun fires a gun at them what <laughs> i know so i mean like scared which is also my name like that's why people shouldn't whatever i'm not getting into that he shoots a gun at them he thinks he injures one and he gets scared so he starts fleeing down the, this rural road in his car and the moment he gets away from the situation he realizes not that he's lost time. (gasps) 
not only has he lost time, he's lost. It's almost three hours later than when he first encountered this craft. That is a long time, a long and amount of time to lose. Paul shrugs it off. Apparently, what he does? I don't know if he shrugged it off because he was scared or was like maybe I was drunk, maybe he wasn't. You know, I don't know. I'm not gonna put any any. I'm not going to say he was drunk like the, like the men in black wanted to do to the science teacher. Right. Paul was a strange man who said, oh, I shot an alien. There we go. I'm going home to sleep. <laughs> but Paul works with the Air Force. And the next day he goes to his job and he's immediately confronted by three men in black suits. They told him that they, quote unquote, had his file. And Paul didn't tell anyone what happened. But the men already said that they knew all about the event and mentioned that the encounter would best be forgotten. <gasps> he, he said, they seemed to know everything about me, where I worked, my name, everything. They also asked questions about my experiences as if they already knew the answers. Okay, so was this the next day after it happened? Yes. So he goes hunting. He sees an alien, shoots it, <laughs> loses three hours of his time, and the next day goes to the Air Force, and they're like, hi, we have your file. We know what happened. That is not that long of a period of time for such a turnaround, especially if you're alone. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, he's not with a whole group of other people. And here he where... was. It's like, how are they going to be able to tell him everything that happened? And that we know what happened in that three hours of missing time. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And so there is so much more I want to tell you about. There is an Unsolved Mysteries episode that I want to talk about. But weirdly enough, when I went to look at it for the research of it, it wasn't available. Like, I looked it up and said, okay, it was this season number this episode number i went to get pull it up and it went say from that season episode 18 to the next season episode one and then mine was episode 19 <gasps> so interesting i'm gonna find a way to watch that one there are also many other ones because we're getting closer we're getting into the closer of the, our decades so okay. they are getting more. They're getting more involved and l with more of the discrediting of people, even though more people are seeing it. They're basically trying to use certain people, like a gentleman named Philip Class, who would use smear campaigns about those who spoke about aliens. Uh, so we have him we're going to talk about next week. We have some celebrities who have been involved with it. Who, who, who? <laughs> Do you know of a man named Dan Aykroyd? I don't know. That sounds familiar. <laughs> so Dan Aykroyd has in a thing and there's a couple other ones and I didn't want to rush or exclude any of them. So next week we will talk about that. So you know what I'm talking about next week. I don't know what you're talking about next week, but I am ready to get scared. I am so excited. 
Yeah. So Dana, what do you actually think of the men in black? And also you need to answer and tell me what you would prefer, red eyes or black okay. eyes. Okay. So what I think the men in black, I'm going to go with that one first. I think the men in black do exist. I'm going to say that. I don't know the true scope of them because I feel like I feel like it's a government thing. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's a government thing that is using uh, extraterrestrial. <laughs> it sounds so stupid to say. <laughs> I don't think it does, though, because they I know th- so much. And I'm mm-hmm. I, either they're using extraterrestrial or advanced stuff that we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably... A small group of individuals. Yes. Very small. I feel like it's not like a... I feel like it is like a secret society type thing. A secret government. Yes. Co- very covert. Very like need to know only. Exactly. Yeah. I feel very yeah. similar to you. Because yeah. I feel like we... We only know so much of the government knows. Uh, the government knows so much about us. Whether we are aware of it or not. And I feel like as far back as we know, there have been alien things. So if they've collected things like the slag from the forties or other things, they've been able to research it and maybe use different things to their own advantages. Right. Yeah. I 100% believe that they do exist. That would surprise you. I think I decided and I hate myself for this. Uh-huh. I, think I would rather experience a black-eyed child than a red-eyed person thing. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, why? <sighs> the red eyes just terrify you too the much? The red eyes just terrify me too much. I I remember there was a show when we were younger. I know which one. It was Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. Fact or Fiction. <laughs> and I watched it at our neighbor's house across the road from us, the Whiteheads. And there's an episode that was fiction. No. Yeah, it was fake. Yeah, it's a fiction one. <laughs> I was like, was it real? It was real to me. It was real to me. And it was a red-eyed thing. And I could not come home that night. Across the road, I was that scared. So <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like it's less the... Like the, it's the glowing red eyes. I feel like that just would undo me. Yeah. I I have to disagree. I feel like red eyes, they're just not scary to me. <sighs> to me, it feels electronic. Like mentally, I just think hmm, electronics. And so that doesn't scare you. me. The black <laughs> eyes, the black eyes. I'm like, oh no, demon. I don't know why, but yeah, well, the red I mean, eyes it, makes, it makes sense because, weirdly enough, basically, dear listeners, what you'll know very well is I love pop culture things. Supernatural, that show, the demons there represent themselves and they're in a human body with black eyes. Oh, so. really? Mm-hmm. I think I'm the only person on the planet that has yet to watch Supernatural, but I one day will pick it up. It's like 15 seasons long, so I get that. <laughs> Abby and I started watching it. Like, the first five seasons are fantastic. And we're looking at, like, season seven, but we it, – it's so much to watch. It's, it's, re- it's good. It's, it's entertaining. The first couple of seasons are more like urban legends and, like – scary stuff like that and then it gets more into like the 
angels and demons and all that like that. Um, but no, it's there. There's an episode in the first season that I actually started watching it before, like a couple of years ago. And there's an episode that was too scary for me, so I said, "That's enough for me." <laughs> that um, is funny. No, the black guys are there too, and I can handle those black guys. I think. I think it's the child aspect of it, which is unsettling. And I feel like that in itself is, it goes to show the genius behind whatever it is. Whatever it is, because yeah. they're, oh, they're like, humans have an innate quality to help protect young. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, they'll be more inclined. Like, honestly, gun to my head, they said, let in one of these people, a red-eyed man or a black-eyed child. I guess. guess. Right. Um, But they do – where some of these men in black alien people are telepathic, the children are, like, almost, like, telepathic, like, telekinetic when they move your body. So – I'm still gonna go with them. I hate everything. Yeah. Well, Dana, you know what you like and what you don't. And you're what were you gonna say? I said I don't like red eyes. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. As you shouldn't. And that's it. That's it, guys. That's our first episode of Scary Stories to Tell Your Sister. We hope we've provided enough spooks to get you through the week. We want to thank you so much for being here with us. And we hope you join us again next week for another dose of history-ish and horror. And if you like the show, please rate and review. It would mean so much to us. And that's all for now. And until next time, Dana. Ah, Don't let anyone in your house. (laughs) Sounds good. Right? Don't yeah, <laughs> especially if they have red or black eyes. Yeah, yeah, Ugh, absolutely not. Stay, stay safe and stay spooky. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye.